2: The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land
3: on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal Elders past, present and those emerging.
0: The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: When I was writing it, I wrote a heap of the stories and I said to my wife then, can you think of anything I've left out? She goes through it and she says, what about when you got shot at St Kilda? I had no recollection at all what she was talking about. And she said, yeah, you remember you got shot at when you... I said, no, do you remember who I was with? She says, Billy Paniotaris." And so I ring Billy and I said to him, you remember, did we get shot at when I was doing special duties with you? And he goes, what, are you a fair dingham? I said, yeah, why? And he says, of course we did. And he, as soon as he said the crook's name, he said Donald Hadley. As soon as he said that, I said Donald George Hadley. And we went through the details and then I had it all back again. But up until then, I had no recollection of it at all. So, fancy you getting shot at and you don't bloody remember it.
0: That's former Detective Joe Noonan with Victoria Police. And for those of you taking notes, Donald George Bratherley. The crook who shot at Joe and Billy Penyardis in St Kilda when they were on special duties was a serial sex offender who was murdered in Pentridge in 1991 by armed robber and serial killer Paul Stephen Haig. Joe Noonan's time in
4: Victoria Police happened to coincide with a period we've discussed before on Australian True Crime. We're talking about the 1980s when the armed robbery squad was at war with the armed robbery gangs of the day.
3: Well, the nineteen eighties in Victoria it was like a war at the time, but it was crooks against coppers. So there was a lot of police shootings, you know, crooks were running around doing stick ups with machine guns, shotguns, pistols, firing shots, like bank robberies were through the roof, armored car holdups. You know, a very dangerous time. And there'd been a number of shootings in the eighties, by the armed robbery squad particularly. So and I got shot at a couple of times myself. So she's a pretty willing old time. And it's different, you know, with the the underbelly wars recently where the crooks are killing crooks. Well, to me it wasn't, you know, it didn't really concern me apart from, you know, where they're doing it in public. If they want to go and kill each other, well, good on them. But this one was police against crooks. It was a different scenario.
0: The two most wanted men in Australia were the master of disguise, Russell Mad Dog Cox, whom we've established was neither named Russell nor Mad and his baby-faced accomplice, Ray Denning.
3: At the Major Crime Squad, they they had a top 10 most wanted list. Cox was number one, Mad Dog Cox. Denning was number two, and I happened to have the extradition warrant from his escape in New South Wales. So that Friday afternoon, they had the shootout at Doncaster Shopping Town when they arrested them both, and we used to have a beer. The Major Crime Squad was on the same floor at St Kilda Road as the armed robbery squad, and every Friday night, we'd alternate between the officers to have a beer. So we're sitting here on this Friday night. What are you blokes up to? Where are your blokes? No, no, they're all out in the job. So we just sat in the office having a beer. They came back. We pulled these two heads, had a big shootout at Doncaster. Like apparently 80 shots were fired. They didn't hit anyone, so the the crooks were lucky in that regard. And apparently when they got back, Mad Dog Cox said, well, it's your lucky day. You got number one and two on Australia's most wantless list. Anyway, they didn't believe him to start with. So they keep questioning him and that goes on for a while. And he keeps saying it. So in the end, they get his fingerprints. Take him upstairs to the information bureau and run the prints through and comes back, yes it is Mad Dog Cox. And Raymond John Denning. So they did have the top two. So then it was celebration time, like that would have been all over you know, coppers all over Australia would be going, Wow, great pinch. That was nineteen eighty eight.
0: Arguably the most vicious men in Australia were the Flemington crew, led by Kath Pettingill's son, Victor Pierce, and his associates, who were all graduates from Tirana Boys Home.
3: Well, there was a number of police shootings. Um, Velastro, Militano were shot by the armed robbery squad. And you, you listen to some of the paperwork put out by Flemington Legal Service and, and others in the legal profession, they called into question whether they were legitimate shoots. Well, they, no one was ever charged and convicted of doing anything wrong, so you've got to think they were. But that crew who were doing all those armed robberies then said, if you know any more of our blokes are shot, we'll kill two coppers in reply, in response. And then when Graham Jensen was shot dead at Narry Warren on the 11th of October 88, the reprisal was, of of course, the the shooting of the two young blokes in South Yarra the next morning.
0: On October 11, 1988, armed robber Graham Jensen was fatally shot by members of the Victorian Armed Robbery Squad as he was driving away from a Narry Warren shopping centre. He wasn't committing a robbery at the time, although police later gave sworn evidence that they saw him brandishing a firearm. Graham Jensen was the best friend of Victor Pierce. Thirteen hours
4: later, at 4.39am, a call was logged at Param Police Station in Melbourne. Reporting that an abandoned car had been left running in the middle of Wall Street in South Yarra, and two young members, Constable Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre, were dispatched in a divvy van to investigate. While they inspected the vehicle, they were ambushed by armed gunmen.
3: I was attached to the major crime squad with the CIB, and we were doing an early morning raid. So I picked up my offsider, we're in the, in the car, came up, on the radio said we're on the air. Going to go to our job, and the operator said, "You know, knew we were a major crime squad." Called the office because didn't have mobiles in those days. So we pull over, ring up D twenty four on the on a payphone somewhere, and he said, "There's two members down in uh, been shot in South Yarra. Head to that location and you know help the uh, the homicide squad who were en route." So we drove like bats out of bugger. We got down there very quickly from where we were. A light Holden sedan. I've not knowing what the rego is the lights on and the smashed windows in the middle of the road. Yeah, 311 received that, 26483. Roger. Yeah, yeah South on 150, I sent uh, 311 down to Wall Street. Um, uh, there's a, a car, a white-holing sedan parked in the middle of the road with the lights on the smashed windows. Um, since then, I've had about three or four cars come down saying that they've heard shots fired in that street and I can't get Pran 311 at this stage. There's yeah. And so when you go through that and you see the natural escalation where any unit clear South Yarra, uh, we're trying to raise brand 311, we can't get them on the radio, then as it escalates, with we've got reports of shots fired and we still can't get them. Well, then it's go onto to a new level that no one would ever, you'd never hear again. Probably you you would have hoped you would never hear again, and then you hear the response, the escalation in the voices of the cars coming up. Do you want me to go? Yes. The inspector would be out. Everyone would be round that operator to see what their response is, and then to have it confirmed that there's two two members shot and they're not looking well, and you know send a mic or et etc. It was terrible.
0: Constable Tynan was still sitting in his seat in the car when he was shot in the head. He died immediately. But it's believed that Constable Eyre managed to struggle with one of the offenders despite being seriously wounded until another offender removed his service revolver from its holster and shot him in the head with it.
3: So obviously the, the inclination was if they hadn't shot Jensen, the two young blokes wouldn't have been killed. A few more people would be alive as a result. But you never you know, you can't spend your life you know, you can't go back in time, so you can't change it. You're standing around looking at each other like, Well, is this really happening? And then you go, we went back to the major crime squad and I ended up going back later that morning and taking witness statements of people in Wall Street, which I didn't actually remember that. I had to ask my brother whether I whether I actually attended the scene and he said, Yeah, you took statements that day. But that's a that's an after effect of the PTSD. I've lost a lot of memory of, you know, detail of things over the years. So now I had to check a lot of things.
4: This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next.
0: In the aftermath of the murders of Constables Tynan and Eyre on Walsh Street, Victoria Police went looking for the Flemington crew, whom they had reason to believe might be able to help them with their inquiries. A month after Walsh Street, 23-year-old Jed Horton was located by the Special Operations Group at a Bendigo caravan park, but only after he'd been tipped off by his friend, Paul Whittacombe, who'd discovered surveillance equipment in his house. After allegedly brandishing a firearm, Horton was hit with three gunshot blasts at close range and pronounced dead at the scene.
3: We had the dogs or surveillance blokes on Horton, so he was going up and back from Melbourne to Bendigo with his girlfriend, Kim Cameron. And then when he found a listening device, well, that forced our hand. We had to take him because we knew he had guns and he he basically said he was going to shoot it out. So we were originally supposed to do the raid on Jed Horton on the Bendigo cabin he was in. So my brother did the briefing. You know, you bloke sledgy on the door. I was going to be first in with the shotgun, which I thought good one, because we knew he'd found our listening device that morning at um, Paul Whittacombe's house in Eagle Hawk. And he said, you're not going to take me like you took Jensen. So he tooled up. We knew he had pistols. So that was a, you know, we did about 100 high-powered raids during that task force, but I sat there with my gear on, the, you know, the vest, and that's the first time you think, I hope these things actually work, and they weren't bought because they were cheap. And then luckily they approved the SOG, and the SOG came, and then we were switched to the secondary target being Widdicombe. Well, that was turned out to be pretty hairy anyway. He got hold of my shotgun, and we had to fight over to getting that back. So it was all a pretty lively day. Long day.
4: 24 year old Gary Abdullah was located by senior constable Clifford Lockwood and his partner constable Dermot Avon at a flat in Carlton six months after Wall Street. Abdullah allegedly produced a replica pistol during questioning. Our guest Joe Noonan attended the scene shortly after.
3: Well, we're in the task force office at St Kilda Road listening to transcription, transcribing tapes and a call came through from D24 that City West detectives had um, watched Gary Abdullah going back to the unit he was in in Carlton that he was moving out of effectively that day and that they were going to intercept him. And we said, well, get back to them, tell them not to intercept him. We're on the way. Wait till we get there and don't go back to the flat. Anyway, we pull up in the driveway of the flat. They weren't answering their radio. I walk down the driveway. There's three of us, myself, Jeff Caller, Billy Panodorus. And we're walking down, and out comes Cliff Lockwood, who was one of the detectives. And I said, what's going on? He says, oh, he's upstairs. I shot him. And so I walk up, and there's Dermot Avon giving heart massage to him. You know, he looked like he'd seen a ghost. Little did I know that they'd done their best to create one. And we walk in, and, you know, he's tried to escape out of a room with no windows. Five, I think, five shots out of one gun and another shot out of a second gun. And I said to him, You know, you head outside. Don't worry about it. I'll take over. So I start giving him heart massage. He's got one eye open, one eye half closed. I'm sitting there thinking, Bloody hell. When does the bloke get jack of this? And I'm, I'm, and he always, every time I had to do any heart massage, I'm thinking, Is it 30 or is it a 60? When do you do the bloody mouth? And am I going to do the mouth to mouth on him? And all this stupid stuff's going around in your head, 100 mile an hour, thinking to myself, what if I save this bloke? You know, what if he comes good and I go out and I've saved Gary Abdullah? I was honestly thinking, what's everyone going to say? Anyway, thank God he, he got a pulse. Because ultimately, you're not there. I wasn't there to kill anybody. Ultimately, I think, well, even though you think all those stupid things and some of it can be dark, ultimately, you're either a good person or you're not. And I wasn't there to not save somebody, even if he was suspect.
0: Gary Abdullah died in hospital six weeks later. Joe Noonan joined the Tynan Air Task Force headed by his brother, Detective Inspector John Noonan, and Detective Inspector Dave Sprague, both of the Homicide Squad. The mission, of course, was to garner convictions for the Wall Street murders. The pressure was intense and it brought a prior police shooting back to haunt Joe. It
3: was horrendous hours. And if you tired or whatever was happening, they'd say, Come in here, hand out the scene photos again. Now this is why we're here. Well, to to the point where I couldn't look at them any I didn't want to look at them anymore. That's all you saw when you closed your eyes were the scene photos. You know, and that and that stays with you. You can't unsee that stuff. And with Neil Clinch the year before, you're sitting there holding a young policeman who's been shot in the head, and you're sitting there. And I was no, I wasn't much older than him, looking around at a couple of blokes that were in shock, just walking around. And you're sitting there thinking, God, bugger, I did not think this could happen, you know. And it's like you're looking through a magnifying glass. There was a bit of blood from his wound running down his hair onto my white shirt where I'm holding him. And I said to one of the blokes, you know what's his name? I didn't know Neil, and he says Neil. And I'm saying one eye's open and the other one's half open, exactly the same. And I didn't know whether he was still with us or not. And I'm just, you know, come on, Neil, you'll be right, mate. The Ambos will be here shortly. And it's a terrible thing. And then to turn out that he was accidentally shot by another police officer was bad. I felt sorry for the other police officer. They were doing a raid on premises and they'd gone to this place, I can't remember the suburb, off the top of my head, and they go and Neil goes to the right-hand rear side, but, you know, forward of the corner. The other police officer goes to the back to the far left and the crook comes out the back door on the far right. So he backs up so he's visible to both, but Neil is on one side of the house and can't see the other police officer on the other side of the house and vice versa. So the crook levels the rifle at the police officer on the left, called on to drop the weapon, didn't, and kept rising it. She fired a shot. Just at that stage, Neil jumped out from the blind side of the building to tackle the crook and took the bullet in the head. And you could choreograph that a million times and that would never happen. That was just pure bad luck. But everyone, when I got there, thought that the crook had fired a shot and he'd shot Neil. But anyway, it turned out when we, we you know, got back and we worked it all out, Obviously, the gun hadn't been fired; it wasn't loaded, and the only one who'd fired was the other police officer. So that was a that was a terrible day, tragic tragedy for everybody, and something you never get over. Errol Mustafa and I went to a pub in St Kilda. We must have had ten or fifteen pots. Hardly spoke a word, and then we walked outside, shook hands, and went home. That was the debrief. That was the worst thing, you know. That was the worst thing I'd ever seen, and I thought, bloody hell, I didn't know what to think. I didn't sleep at all that night. I'd just had my birthday two days before it. Oh, man, I could have been anybody. You know, and you see them in uniform, you think, coppers don't bloody get shot and die in uniform. What's the go?
0: The Wall Street murders and the Tynan Air Task Force definitely tested Joe Noonan's mental health reserves. The hours were long. Management was less sympathetic, shall we say, than it is today. And on top of that, there were some extraordinary circumstances to deal with. Remaining Flemington crew members Victor Pierce, his brother Trevor Pettingill, Anthony Lee Farrell, and Peter David McAvoy were eventually charged with the murders of Constables Tynan and Eyre. The Pettingill's young cousin Jason Ryan gave evidence against the accused in return for immunity from prosecution and was placed in witness protection. Victor Pierce's wife Wendy subsequently retracted the alibi she'd provided for Victor for the night of the murders and also entered witness protection. From that point on, Wendy provided further evidence against the Flemington crew. As police meticulously compiled the brief of evidence, Wendy was hidden away in country Victoria. It took months on end. According to many published reports, including by our old friend Andrew Rule, her police protectors were ordered to cater to her every whim and to keep Wendy happy at all costs. It cost a reported $2 million, by the way. One of Wendy's major gripes was loneliness, and she demanded to be taken out on the town to meet people. Of course, our guest Joe is a gentleman, so we'll never know for sure who he's talking about here. But between playing Cupid, listening to assholes on surveillance tape and mismanagement of office supplies, after a couple of years on the task force, the whole experience was clearly beginning to wear on him.
3: Yeah, yeah. we were on the nine or ten months, I think, we are on the task force. And then having to look after, you know, Witness X, I won't say the name just in case anyone gets litigious, but everyone I think knows who it is, has come out in the papers herself and mentioned who she is. So. But to get tasked with taking her up the bush, you know, when the task force is put in two, and there's two people taking witness statements off her about all the stick-ups they'd used, the guns, the murder weapon in particular, and who, those, who the crew were. And then, you know, they call us in and we're doing witness protection. We should have been doing the brief. Like at that stage my brother was doing the brief on his own and all of us were being used to do witness protection on Witness X while those two were doing interviews during the day and looking after his statements. You know, and then we get to ask with can you take her up to up to Bellarat and get her serviced effectively? We're sitting there saying, What? You know, just go up, let her meet someone and have sex. You've got to be joking. You like her so much you take her up. And it was just that was just degrading. Couldn't believe it all the witness statements, interviews, you know, listening device tapes, you know, there was 1,400 odd listening device tapes. Each of them went for about an hour and each one was listened to between three and four times to check what they said. And some of the stuff they said on that, I didn't put in the book, but some of it was just atrocious. But you'd use that for intelligence, you know, and then you had everything trying to put into 1980 computers so, you know, they load up 300 statements. They got six word processing people to come in. Well, they'd never done much because computers were only new. Like, I remember I was at the Major crime School. We came in one day and they'd taken all our typewriters and there was the old VDUs on our desk with the black screen and the beep, you know, the flashing green. Everyone walks in and goes, what's this? There was no training, no implementation. No one told us they were coming. So everyone hunted around St Kilda Road police station that day and brought back all the typewriters so we could do interviews because no one knew how to use them. So it was very early day technology and then when we got the task, you know, task force to set up, they tried to get what they thought was right but it just didn't work and it kept falling over and they had to keep redoing things and it just wasted so much time.
0: The murder trial against Victor Pierce, his brother Trevor Pettingill, Anthony Lee Farrell and Peter David McAvoy finally got underway in February 1991. By then, though, it was all but over. Because just weeks before, in a pre-trial hearing, Wendy Pierce, the $2 million woman, had sensationally and completely recanted every bit of evidence she'd given the prosecution while in witness protection. The entire case against all four defendants fell apart and Wendy did nine months in jail for perjury. Wendy and Victor rekindled their relationship and stayed together until Victor's death in 2002. He was ambushed at night in his car in a suburban Melbourne street and shot in the head at close range. You can hear more about the so-called golden age of armed robbery in Australia and the gruesome death of a would-be robber in a suburban bank in Sydney that ended it all in episode 172 of Australian True Crime. And you might have noticed we've uploaded that episode again for you this week in case you need to refresh your memory. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, you can call Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Like so many other members of Victoria Police, Joe Noonan put everything he had into the pursuit of justice for young Constables Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre, who were murdered in Wall Street, South Yarra in 1988. But after two and a half years and millions of dollars, when the matter finally came to trial in 1991 the fatal flaw in the case against the notorious Flemington crew of armed robbers, led by Victor Pierce, was discovered too late. It all rested on the evidence of one witness, Pierce's wife, Wendy. She proved in her first appearance on the stand in a pre-trial hearing that she was, in fact, still loyal to him. She methodically dismantled the prosecution's case by recanting every statement she'd ever made against him and his co-accused.
3: When I finished off in the task force, I went back to the major crime squad and I'd missed out on my sergeant's exams. So I was allowed to sit the sergeant's exams on my own. I passed all them, went back to the major crime. I was unpacking my gear, a box full of my gear, and my senior sergeant, Peter Spence, who's now deceased, unfortunately, he comes over and says, oh, mate, don't unpack yet. You've got to go and see the detective inspector. I said, why? What's going on? Oh, mate, you've got to go and see him. So I go and see this detective inspector, take a seat, uh, you're going to be returned to force reserve to the bullpen, which is where you went if you were in trouble or you're or a new detective at Russell Street. I said, why am I going to the bullpen? Oh, there's been some allegations made against you. And I said, like what? Oh, that you you assaulted an inspector of the homicide squad. Well, that was Inspector X that I'd had a, I had a blue with, not physically. We came close once in the homicide squad, but it didn't actually happen. So I told him that story and who was there, so that was right. And he said, "Then, as a senior detective, you you hit at the police club as well." And I said, "Well, I know who that is, and that's Detective X." And I said, "There was two SOG blokes there that broke up the fight that never happened." I said, "So that didn't happen." And then he said, "Well, you also uh, accused of hitting a journalist at a homicide function." Well, I knew who that was, and we went through that. So in the end, I was allowed to stay at the homi- at the Major Crime Squad. I didn't get sent back to force reserve, but I just sat there and thought, obviously they're not going to give up. There was a distinct dislike of my brother by some of the the hierarchy and you know some people liked him some people didn't so that had a flow on effect to me and I think they were just giving me a hard time to make it harder on him and I just didn't want to do it I'd 10 years I'd loved it and that just put a sour taste in my mouth and I thought that's how they reward you for giving up your life and doing whatever you could to do the right thing that's how they look after you I don't want to do it so I, I pulled the pin and go and do something else And unfortunately I think too many coppers stay in because they don't think they can do anything else and then they they stay in there with bad attitudes because they hate it. They should go. Go and do something else. There's plenty of things you can do.
0: As we know from having spoken to so many guests about PTSD, it can be a sleeping giant. For Joe, acceptance, diagnosis, effective treatment and finding a way to live with PTSD has been a long road and is an ongoing journey.
3: Well, 20 years later, we were living up at Sandhope, just out of Shepparton. Uh, I'd moved up there. I'd split up with my wife, who'd joined the police, gone back into the police force. I met her on Wall Street. We got married. She had three kids. Well, we had three kids. I was there too. And then after 15 years, she went back in the police force. And that put pressure on us that, you know, I was over it a lot. I didn't want to live my life again through the police force. She was mad keen on it. Um, we moved up to Shepparton. We'd split up after my father died. We were apart for a a year, and then she's going to move up there with the kids. So we end up – we'll give it another try. We buy the house up there. And then McAvoy came out in the paper in New South Wales with the the New South Wales coppers. He's one of the ones who was acquitted of the Wall Street murders. And he said – he told them the sweetest sound he'd heard was one of the young blokes at Wall Street plead for his life before he shot him in the head. And I read that, and I was just enveloped. I don't know how to say, with just an absolute rage. Not where I went the went to punch a wall or anything. I just shut down. And I hopped in the car to go and drive to work. I was selling cars at that stage at a just because that was the only job I could get at the time. And I drove down this dirt road, the only, only road you could go to. And I pull over about half a K from home. I had no idea where I was, what I was doing. I pick up the mobile, dial the last number, which was my wife who was at home. And she says, What are you doing? And I said, do you know where I'm going? She goes, what do you mean, where are you going? What, you, you know, like you're stupid or something. And I just, it was like someone had wiped the disc. And I went back home and I ended up going and seeing some the psycho, um, psychologist in uh, the local town. I can't even think of the name, but this is what it does to your memory. And eventually he put me onto a, a psychiatrist. I rang up the association and said, hey, listen, what do I do to get some help? They said, you really want to bring all this crap up 20 years later? We don't really want to hear about it, and so I ended up putting up a claim myself. Got the claim up, and then they, I thought, you know, oh, they'll pay me something to, till I'm right. And I got a check for 180 dollars. And I, I rang up Gallagher Bassett and said, "What's this for, travelling or something?" And they said, "No, no, that's your pay." I said, "What a, a five or six year, eight year senior detective or something would have to be a more than 180 a week." And they said, "Well, we put it back to your injury, injury first occurred when you got shot at by." George Hadley in 1983, and your salary as a constable in 1983 was $180. I said, well, surely you'd index that? And they said, no, we don't have to index it. <laughs> so I had no choice. I had to go back. I had three kids at school. So I didn't couldn't afford to have PTSD anymore. I had to get a job. And actually, down the track, I think it did me a favour. I kept going to see the psychiatrist of my own volition after that, but, you know, he was 460 bucks a pop. I couldn't do that for too long. But a lot of people get tied up with PTSD and you get into that scenario of just telling the same thing. And I think the more you talk about it, the more you you live it in your dreams, you live it in your daily life, you have flashbacks, all that sort of stuff. I think the best thing sometimes is just not to talk about it anymore. Well, the psychiatrist said, I think it's good if you write everything down. So when I first wrote this book, it was 330,000 words. It was a manifesto basically against the police department on how I didn't think they, I liked them or they didn't like me. And then I spoke to Andrew Rule and he said you should put more of the funny stuff in there and light that up. And because no one writes like I write, I, I haven't, you know, I don't give, put on any airs and graces and think I'm better than anybody else or the world's a worse place because I'm not in the police force anymore. When I was writing it, I, I wrote a heap of the stories and I said to my wife then, can you think of anything I've left out? And she goes through it and she says, what about when you got shot at St Kilda? I had no recollection at all what she was talking about. And she said, Yeah, you remember you got shot at when you... I said, No, do you remember who I was with? She says, Billy Paneotorus. And so I ring Billy and I said to him, You remember, did we get shot at when I was doing special duties with you? And he goes, What are you, him? I said, Yeah, why? And he says, Of course we did. And he, as soon as he said the crook's name, he said Donald Hadley. As soon as he said that, I said, Donald George Hadley. And we went through the details and then I had it all back again. But up until then, I had no recollection of it at all. I couldn't believe it. I said, fancy you're getting shot at and you don't bloody remember it. You know, when you've got a gun pushing your guts and he actually is looking at me with an, at this look of malevolence on his face. He, he couldn't figure out why the gun wasn't firing because I had my hand jammed in the, between the hammer and the firing pin and he couldn't. And, but when, as soon as I pushed it into the floor, he did manage to fire it. You know, and two seconds later, that would have been me. You know, Billy Paniotovas, he's standing on the outside of the car that I'm fighting on. This, this, uh, the crooks face up on a bench seat with the gun. The copper's face down, and I'm on top of the copper face down as well. And I get hold of the gun with the crook's hand, and he's put it round the other copper into my ribs. Billy's trying to get in the other door on the passenger side and couldn't. When the shot's fired, you know, it would have been quite justifiable for Billy to hightail it and wait for help, and he didn't. He smashed the passenger window and come in with that gun going all over the joint and just being fired and and took the gun and saved us. You should have got a gong for that, not uh, nothing. You didn't get anything in those days. But that was pretty hairy. So that was when I think the PTSD started, even though I didn't know what it was at the time. But that shift from hell, you know, that was – we go to a, a welfare call on a bloke who we knew was a druggie, you know, in an apartment in Elwood, and as hot as Hades, bloody – Terrible, hot, muggy day. And, of course, nobody dies on the ground floor. It's always on the top floor. So we go up the three flights of stairs. We go into this, have a look through the window, and you can see the body in the lounge room. Push open or force the door. Get in there, and it's just blowflies like the size of bats, and you can't get rid of them. They just stick to you. And the smell was terrible. Here's this bloke dead on the floor. And I thought he was naked, but he had had jeans on that had actually become part of him. I don't know. I'd never seen that happen before, but it was just terrible. And we're checking the body, and I thought his eyes moved, and, of course, I pulled back and bumped into the bloke I was working with, we both fall out the door and back onto the brandy, and he said, what the bloody hell are you doing? I said, his eyes just moved. His bloody eyes moved. He's dead. As a maggot, he actually said. It was actually a premonition. We go back in. He looks at the body, and the eyes were moving, and the tongue, it was maggots. It was just awful. We get the CI down there, and then we get the undertakers down there. And they said, can you give us a hand, get him up? And we tried to lift him, and he actually started to separate. And I said, well, I'm out. No way. You have to get another one of your crews. I'm not doing any more with this. And so they ended up having to wrap the bloke in the carpet and take him out in the carpet because to keep him in one piece. It was just awful. Oh, and he'd been dead for a week. We used to see a lot in St Kilda in those days, like it was a drug haven. And there was druggies everywhere, like wall to wall with them. We could sit on the roof across the road at one of the boarding houses and you'd watch people go into the fish and chip shop in Fitzroy Street, hand over a $50 note, and they'd get a bag of fish and chips and come out with no change. You know, We're sitting on the roof with a pair of binoculars doing special duties, calling down on the radio, grab this bloke in the red shirt, he's just got a $50 fish and chip. You grab him, search him, hair on. And you had some bloke. I remember there was one bloke turned up regularly who was an academic actually a professor at a university who used heroin but somehow was a functioning drug addict and the nicest bloke you'd ever talk to. And yet you get others who are just bloody scum of the earth that were there. You know, plenty of them used to mix it with different things to take care of rivals and all that, mix it with battery acid and kill people. There's plenty of that went on. Well, I had three psychiatrists say I shouldn't be working at all The psychiatrist I saw said, you know, I was the highest score he'd ever had, which I thought initially was good, but it wasn't, it was bad. But I was filling out these three questionnaires he gave me, and I thought, this is unbelievable. Someone's got in my head to write these questions down because you think it's only you. You don't know that, you know, other people who have got it are doing the same thing as you. You think it's something unique to yourself and there's something wrong with you, or it's just normal. That's how people are. Well, it's not, you know, you fill those questionnaires out. And I said, how did you come up with these questions? He says, that's PTSD. That's what it is. But a lot of blokes you talk to and, you know, I've got family members that still don't think it's a real thing. Well, I hear tell you it is. Well, they don't think it's a real thing and I do, obviously, because I, I had a bloke who read the book rang me on Sunday and I've known him for years, the journalist, and he said, mate, very brave of you to write the book. I thought he was joking. And I said, oh, yeah, why is that? And he said, no, about the PTSD, you know, the detail you go into about the PTSD. And I said, why is that brave? And he said, I've had PTSD for years. I just haven't told anyone. And he's a journalist and a very good journalist and a very good bloke who every time we get together is a laugh. He's just a riot. But he's everyone's got the – and I was the same in the police force. I was the party boy. I was the funny bloke, go out, sing, dance, do whatever. We work hard, and we played extremely hard. But you know, behind every clown, there's something wrong sometimes. And of course, there was nothing in those days to tell you that there wasn't anything wrong. PTSD hadn't been invented, I don't think, in the eighties. Well, I went to court. Went to court in Wangaratta, and that was to get a classification, effectively, where I would get something in the way of remuneration to get for what I'd suffered over the twenty years, and which everyone said I had the PTSD and that I shouldn't be working, et cetera, et cetera. We go to court, give evidence. We go through all the terrible things I'd seen. And the defence solicitor even said, you know, thank you for your service, which wasn't said in those days. That was an American thing they said to the troops. I said, oh, yeah, no worries. And it it was emotional going through half of this stuff again, especially in the witness box. And then we sit there and they came out with the ruling was, I'd suffered no loss because I had a good job, which I did. I was working at Wilson Security. I was paid well. It was a good job, senior role. And I'd met my new fiance. who I'm not with now, but I'd met Susan and was in a relationship. So they said, you've got a good job, you've got a dollar in your pocket and you got a nice lady with you, so you haven't suffered any loss. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so that was the end of that. So I went out and went back to work and I thought there's another – Someone else who's let me down, nothing seemed to be there to help anybody. And my daughter's been in the job, I think, eight years now. You know, and some of the things she's seen is pretty gruesome. And there's a lot more uh, avenues to support than the – well, there was none in our day. There's a lot more now, which they need. Still doesn't let them unsee things. You know, she's done some – she's seen some terrible things too that she's not going to unsee. I wish, you know, My advice was not to join the police force, but – that's how much my kids listen to me, unfortunately. <laughs> but she loves it. Well, luckily, the bloke I work with, Andrew, is ex army. He had he's had PTSD for as long as I have, and we've been mate best mates for twenty years. So we see in each other, we know what you know, when one's down, one's up. You take into account, you know, we've both got bad memories. I take notes of everything. So we work well together. We we complement each other effectively knowing what we've got and how to deal with it. You know, we don't sleep much. You don't uh, – That that's never come back. I very rarely drink these days. And you just try and look after yourself. I go to the gym. I like to keep – you know, try and keep fit. You just got to work within the limitations. Now, I've got no delusions of being a tough guy anymore. I'm too old.
0: If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, you can call Lifeline 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Thank you to patrons Jessica Carty, Lucille, Mandy, Beck Sutton, Melissa Spears, Mrs Wagg, Nicole Grage, Resley Bouchelle, Susan Werner, Lisa Godfrey, Beth Noble and Alison Briggs. And you can become a patron simply by going to patreon.com forward slash Pod. There's a link in the show notes.
3: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.